Hey there, my name's Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 170 people around this question, not to provide you with the universal answer, but to help you to find and define your own answer to this question. On the 45th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast, I'm delighted to have Teresa Quinlan as our guest. Teresa is an emotional intelligence coach and co-author of the book, You Belong Here. In this episode, we dive into Teresa's lifelong exploration of the question, is that me? We explore practical aspects like exploring our emotional vocabulary, the importance of paying attention to our emotions by observing and naming them, and discuss accountability for our actions and emotional responses. Furthermore, we tackle the significant topic of knowing our boundaries and clearly communicating them, emphasizing the balance needed to prevent emotions running wild. We also take a moment to reflect on the compassion and importance of acknowledging and accepting the changes in each other over time, instead of clinging to outdated models of ourselves and each other. While Teresa also shares a personal example of applying these insights to bring about a profound shift in her relationship with her mother, a story that will hold relevance for many listeners, I'm sure. If you're grappling with understanding and managing your emotions, or find yourself continuously caught up in emotional responses, this episode provides plenty of insights, thoughtful ideas to ponder and practical exercises to experiment towards crafting your own version of a good life. Look, I took a hell of a lot from this conversation with Teresa. She's someone who I found to be full of life source and aliveness and is someone who is most certainly walking her talk in terms of the work she's doing around emotional intelligence. So I'm sure you're going to take a lot from this episode. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like, share and subscribe. And if you're on the podcasting platforms, please leave a review as I'd greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 45th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Teresa, thank you very much for joining me today on the What is a Good Life podcast. Uh, you're someone whose views I have very much enjoyed uh, exchanging over over the last little while and indeed talking with you as well. So I'm very grateful to have you here today with us. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure. I, and the, the feeling is mutual. I've been watching clips. I've been watching your posts as well. And always really engaging it's thought-provoking it's insightful those that's the kind of stuff i like to consume right the stuff that it feels good to consume you can feel yourself stretching and growing while you're consuming it that's a it's a lovely way to put the, or kick things off thank you very much um teresa the the question that i always start things off with is uh is there a question you're trying to answer as you move through life it's interesting because when we had our first chat, I shared the story about when I was a kid and I used to like bury myself in the snow and look up at the stars and ask myself all of these questions, what's going on? And I think it's really the a version of the same question since I was younger. It hasn't really changed very much. Sometimes other questions will distract me in the process. But the the question that I seem to always be asking is, you know, some version of is that me or is that something I've learned to be, learned to believe, learned to have? So it's kind of that exploration around um, what really is authentic, what really is the self and what really is a, a natural versus nurture perhaps or how I was meant to be, how I'm meant to be compared to how I end up because of influences from other things and other people that's kind of the question and in in that question of is is that me is that uh that then sounds like it's like a repeated process like a even a, a recalibration within the question itself or, or it can be applicable as you continuously move through life mm-hmm. yeah it's also really selfish every time <laughs> <laughs> It's very inward focus. It's very like self-focused. And, you know, so it does evolve over time. The question itself, when I ask it also in in and of itself, asking it is sometimes really challenging. Sometimes it's a, um, a welcome question and sometimes I'm quite resistant to it. So I have opportunities where I'm like, oh, let's explore that. That feels really good to want to lean into. And other times I'm like, oh, who cares if it is or if it isn't. It, and, and there's a frustration <laughs> around it as well. And, and the whole point of it, the whole point for me, especially as I've gotten older, like maybe post 35, as I've gotten older, the question is more a, 
less about like discovering who I actually am and feeling grounded in that. So up to 35, that's really what the question was all about and just becoming more and more comfortable and confident in my own skin and my identity, my authenticity. And now it's, it's been much more around where can I be mushier, softer, where can I be less attached to the things that I believe in about how I see the world and believe in just believe in period and how I operate. So the question itself uh, has a, the question hasn't evolved, but how I look and use the question has evolved. Yeah. Yeah. The, can you give us a sense of, uh, of times where you're like, Oh, just don't even, uh, like, I don't even want to look at that question right now. Uh, yeah. When probably when my ego is just all up in my face and, <laughs> and I just like, I don't care to look because it's an automatic knowing of I'm totally wrong. I know that's my ego and I don't want to be wrong. And so I don't want to explore the question right now. So I just, usually I give myself the grace of not exploring it right now and I'll come back to it when my ego is a little less dominant. That's pretty nice though, isn't it? Like, is that, is that, um, does that kind of coincide with some of the kind of malleability you're talking about there? Like, or the, the mushiness, um, cause I, I don't know about you, but for me, when I started a lot of this, let's say self-inquiry or trying to figure out who I am, I had very fixed kind of rules and principles. Like, mm. you know, I'm honesty is a big principle. Now I felt that for a period of time, maybe I was a little bit full of shit. So honesty, honesty, <laughs> honesty. But then, you know, if you look at things like, I don't know, if I'm traveling over a, a border um, and someone at customs asks me, do I have a, an illegal immigrant in the, in the car who's, who's fleeing from a war-torn country or something like this? So would I, would I proudly stick to my values and say, yes, I'm, I'm carrying a passenger in the back there under the blanket? <laughs> you know, I know that sounds ridiculous, but, but I'm just saying the, the idea of just how fiercely we attach to these things, it, it, I think it's it's almost like they're they're really helpful um in moments but then it can also be a kind of an imposition on reality as well sometimes yeah it's true i recently read the distinction of looking at this from the perspective of it's not that i don't own anything it's that nothing owns me and so in those instances where you know am i going to lean on this value or am I going to give it some wiggle room is I think that distinction of I can discern when something of greater value and importance to my value is actually necessary in the moment. Like the livelihood of the individual you're carrying in that instance is has a higher priority than does living in my value. I'm OK to actually put that aside in the moment. Uh, that discernment, I think, is really important. And I think that's also that detaching from like knowing how to detach from things and when to detach from things, because there is something of greater importance or value that is showing itself in the moment. And that malleability is it's not something I had when I was a kid at all. I, I tended to stand in my convictions um, and not waver from them to my own detriment over and over and over and over again. Like I would easily lose friends. I would he be heavily disciplined. And, you know, it's kind of like, why would you take the beating if you like, you could just like not do that thing. And I'm like, yeah, but that thing seems so much more <laughs> important than the discipline I'm about, I'm about to receive to my own detriment. I don't know if you just call that sass my mom used to call it sass like you're really sassy or some people would just call that no you really you have strong convictions and so you know that's assertiveness or that's gumption I mean depends on the way you look at it we can give it a whole bunch of different labels some of them seemingly positive some of them negative which is part of that other question is like is that me <laughs> which one because the society wants to give me a whole bunch of different labels I'm the one who gets to pick which one I'm going to operate under, if any. And when you when you say that, like, because that, I, I don't know, for me, when, like, I was absolutely entrenched or so vehemently attached to the notion of even being right or not saying this is your experience now, but from my experience of mm -hmm. uh, in, 
when I was younger, like, or I had to be, I had to win an argument. Like even when, even when through the argument, I felt like I knew I was actually wrong. I still could come up with ways in which to win the argument. And I, I don't know, there's something even in, in the zone, in the kind of realizing of who we are or what we are. I think there's something really interesting of like a sense of resisting truth, even when, even when, or resisting truth when it's inconvenient to us. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good example of the tug of war between what will I receive in the demonstration of my intelligence? So from a very young age, many of us, I think, can relate to how high Uh, priority intelligence received from the people that are around us, whether that be our parents or our teachers or extended family members, that when we demonstrated something related to intelligence, we got recognition for it. Through our entire school experiences, you know, we're stack ranked based on the demonstration of our intelligence. And you get more recognition if you're higher up on that list than if you're lower on the list. And so I think we learn to compromise sometimes Uh, in those moments of, I know I'm not right, but winning is going to be an example of my intelligence. Winning or being right is going to be an example of something that's going to get me recognition and acceptance. And so I'm willing to um, sacrifice one thing for the other. And that sort of dance or that tug of war, I think, is something that we all experience maybe quite regularly and relatably when we're younger. And then hopefully at least the work that I do for myself and the work that I help my clients do, hopefully what we're doing is we're trying to not put ourselves in the position of the tug of war of having to choose of recognizing it can be both. And. Yeah. When you mentioned, when you mentioned earlier, the sense of uh, this is quite a inward focused or I, I'm not sure if you used the, the word selfish uh, or something did. you did. Yeah. Yeah. Is <laughs> how, how do you, how do you view that journey even, I, I guess, like, because there, there is a strange thing of someone labeled how I was describing how I was approaching life um, in a complimentary way. They, uh, the overall thing was complimentary, but they did use the word selfish. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I, was, I don't know, I think it, it, it's a really interesting kind of paradox because there is an element of selfishness to it. But then if we come out the other side of it and we no longer are putting our our stuff on other people or our requirements mm-hmm. for other people to make us happy or something like this, it, it's it's simultaneously both, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't often consider selfish a phrase that is negative. I understand we socially use it maybe dominantly in that way. I use it simply as something I'm doing for me. Right. <laughs> so when I'm doing something that's straight up for me, then I just consider that the term selfish applies. It, that doesn't mean that there aren't benefits to the social, that there aren't ripple impacts that are positive for other people, that when I dedicate time to those things, then I show up in social environments and in relationships in a very different way than if I don't do those kinds of things. In essence, I spend a lot of time engaging in selfish activities, things that are straight up for me so that I can be the best version of myself, which generally means that I'm good for everyone else or better for everyone else as well. Um, This is that element of, um, I think, where some people often in their life get stuck is they see it as just the negative. And so they put themselves last on the priority list, but then they're struggling in all of the other things. And so trying to get that equation right is sometimes overcoming the internal judge and saboteur that is telling you all the reasons why you shouldn't be doing those kinds of things under those negative labels of, you know, this is what I've been taught it means. And so if we're going to loosen our attachments to things like beliefs, one of, I think, a really healthy one is loosening the attachment to the word of what is selfish and how we define that. When you're in your investigation, then of is that me? And how how have you been able to deduce almost like what is me and what is learned? Like I know it's not a obviously just an exact science with just a mathematical equation, but 
how, how <laughs> does that, what does that process almost look like for you? Yeah, it would be nice if, well, it's kind of interesting because perhaps we think it would be nice if it was something that I could logically figure out that if it was a mathematical equation, because then I'd have an answer, yes or no, it's, it's black and white. It's the fascinating part of us human beings trying to intellectualize everything because that feels easier to explain or describe to other people. I don't know if I can intellectualize, if I could describe it to someone else and put it in an equation, then, then they won't look at me so weird. Yeah. Um, so what I have recognized from a young age is that when I ask the question, the answer feels very different. When I ask the question, the question itself, what I'm asking the question around, it feels very different in the moment. When I'm answering, yes, that's me. No, that's, that's a fabrication. Or that's, you know, that's a coat that someone wants me to wear. So that actually isn't me. And I have that intuitive emotional sense around it much more than I would have like a logical explanation for it. However, once I have the intuitive emotional response to it, then I can navigate through the logical side of it and think about it in ways that are descriptive or explanatory. And has that been has that been um, a kind of an intuitive process all along for you? Is that is that something you've you've refined even with what you're focusing on on now, even in terms of like a, emotional emotional intelligence and emo, like uh, the quality of emotions? Like, is is this something that's uh, or that was always quite quite clear to you? Um, I think the difference now is. I'm not as emotional about the process. Right. And it is fine-tuned because years of practicing tuning into your intuition, then you just know what it sounds like. You know what it feels like. And so there's no second guessing it. When I was younger, coming to those realizations was quite quite emotional because um, I had to I had to fight for it. So socially, when the people around me want me to be a certain way, want me to do certain things, and I'm, that's not me, then I had to fight against that. And that created a lot of emotional turmoil. It usually made me quite sensitive, as in I, I would cry quite a bit in my own self-exploration. I do a lot of crying because then that's the sort of acceptance and, and acknowledgement that I'm going to have to go to war. <laughs> I'm going right. to have to battle right. for myself. I have to battle for my authenticity for showing up who I am. And that means I'm probably going to have to risk uh, being loved or liked. And that made me quite emotional in those moments. And I would cry in my self-exploration. Now as an adult, I don't have that same sensitivity to it anymore. I think maybe because I've also realized in the journey, it turns out that Oftentimes you don't have to risk being loved or liked. It's that's just in our head. And when you do risk being loved or liked, it's okay. Those people weren't meant to be part of my circle anyways. Yeah, there's there's something I think really lovely in that moment where we can realize that if that is up for grabs, if loved or being liked is even part of if there is even some insecurity even around that being a consequence of what we're about to do I think once we realize that oh wait then there isn't even a question to be asked about these mm -hmm. people in a way <laughs> mm -hmm. true and it's also something I could give to myself so I learned yeah. I, I had glimpses of it when I was younger that oh my self-love is actually is actually very powerful and when when I always have that then the need of love from other people actually diminishes because I can give it to myself. And that, that journey, that wisdom, that mm, development came in, came and went throughout life. So sometimes it was very strong and I had it and I held it and I used it really well. And then other times the judge, the saboteur took over and I would adjust myself within the relationship to a point where I was feeling very uncomfortable because I wasn't being myself. And then I was pissed off at the other person. So I'd point my finger outward and say, you made me do this. And you know, <laughs> it didn't take, didn't, it didn't take me too long usually to hear, Oh, wait, hang on a second. I'm blaming them for something that I'm clearly doing. 
um, and then trying to write that ship in a relationship, right? Like it, reversing that, becoming yourself and showing yourself to other people. Again, another risk, you know, will they stay? Will they continue to be my friend? Will this boyfriend stick around? Like all of that sort of stuff. And I think what it's taught me in life is risk is okay. Like it's, it's okay to risk relationships because I know I'll be okay. <laughs> I'll be okay when, as relationships come and go, I've learned that throughout life. It's an, it's a great lesson to have learned. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a phenomenally important lesson for like it, it, I think it's it's only something I've even learned in my my early thirties. Um, mm-hmm. Which, when you're as you're describing there, when you're when we're kind of shaping ourselves almost in the almost in a mold that we think the other person will approve of, like we're mm-hmm. really in trouble, like because. I, I don't know, like there's so much of, um, or as you say, like if you're, if we're fearful that if I'm alone, then I may not be okay. Like where mm-hmm. will the love be almost? Mm-hmm. It's, I, these are, I think are really kind of, well, they don't have a malevolent kind of intention behind them. Uh, I think they, they're they so draining and they're so kind of, they're such a toxic present in our in presence in our lives, whether it's with a lover or a partner or a friend or whoever it may mm-hmm. be. Yeah. And I think it's a really easy thing to also self-assess where I'm at. Am I micro dosing on self-love and self-joy every day or am I micro chipping at it? So do I contribute to my own experience or am I a detriment to my own experience? And it's actually from an emotional intelligence standpoint, because we can feel the difference between when we're doing both of those things. And that's why emotional self-awareness is a foundation of our emotional intelligence. And it's simply the practice of paying attention to which side of that line am I on? Am I on the positive emotional experience side or the negative? So do I have pleasant emotional experiences or unpleasant emotional experiences? And it can it is that easily black and white. And you can get nuanced as to how far away from neutral or well-being am I emotionally. And uh, the nuance is a robust language around what we're experiencing. But if we're just starting, most of the time I coach people on just determine pleasant or unpleasant, and you'll know straight away. And then we can work on language around it afterwards. But paying attention to what makes me pleasant, what makes me unpleasant, then helps us to cultivate, do more of what is pleasant and less of what is unpleasant. And that's pretty much going to send you in the right direction. It's uh, when you said their emotional language, it's, it's incredible to me how much, I don't know, the, the, when I saw a therapist for the first time, she asked me, how was I feeling? And I was 31 or 32, 31, I think at the time, so nine years ago. And I gave her a, a theory. <laughs> like a, a <laughs> sci- <laughs> She must have been laughing on the inside. She's like, oh, here's another one. <laughs> <laughs> she she had to ask me she had to ask me i think it was on the third time the third time of asking that i was able to say the word sad and mm. you know so it's it's even really interesting what you're saying um about providing the vocabulary because i i think we don't even realize so it's one thing even to have the vocabulary because right obviously i knew the word sad Mm-hmm. But even then being able to attach my state to to something that I probably perceived maybe as unpleasant or or like even maybe back then like a weakness or, or whatever it may be. It's it's really interesting how we can I agree with you, like the 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 range of vocabulary we have to be able to use these things because I don't think we've quite realized the the inaccurate nature even of words. Um, mm-hmm. And then when we have a very low, like a low level of vocabulary to describe our emotional state, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, I think that's something that's not given anywhere near enough attention is like, how, how do we even expand that? Mm-hmm. I mean, it can, I mean, quite simply, it can start in the home when we think about what we teach our children and it absolutely needs to be in our school system, like emotional intelligence, skill set and development needs to be within the school curriculum, like hands down. And there are schools that have integrated integrated it into their curriculum. And to be able to see the outcomes of those students, both their mental fitness practices, their emotional well-being, their psychological, but also their capacity to learn, their aptitude for learning 
is the is through the roof in comparison to children that don't learn those kinds of things and the longevity of those skills afterward, like in high school and university, they're leaps and bounds beyond with their classmates who didn't get that experience is. So all of the research there shows just how valuable it is. And it's a shame our systems haven't caught up to the research just quite yet. When you also mentioned the idea of uh, an awareness of how, how we're feeling, is that something I, I know you mentioned, like kind of laying, <laughs> laying back even in a, in a groove of in the snow and looking up at the stars before mm-hmm. when we talked before and just like asking yourself some of these bigger kind of existential questions around your identity and, uh, and so forth. Like, do you like for you to become aware of your emotional state or even to sit with your emotional state? Is is that something that you've cultivated or was that something that you've been comfortable with? I know I've always been comfortable expressing my emotions, like letting them show all of them. I've never really hidden any of them, even though I was often encouraged to hide a couple of them. <laughs> I did a lot of bucking of the system when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the rules, I didn't like, I didn't like a lot of them. All of them just felt so confining to how I wanted to be in the world. And so, yeah, I got in trouble a lot for that, but I regret none of it. (laughs) (laughs) I regret none of it. And and also um, I stood up for a lot of people that I saw couldn't stand up for themselves in those situations. And I regret none of that either, even regardless of like, we could call them beatings now. That's exactly how they would be referred to um, that I would have received, whether they'd be from other kids because I was standing up for other kids in a kid environment or an adult because I was standing up for myself or another kid in an adult environment. So, uh, sorry, that was a that was a huge tangent. No, no. Cultivating, cultivating emotion language. I have absolutely gotten better at it. And because I was specifically focused on having better language, aside from, you know, our traditional happy, sad, joyful, thankful, like mad, angry, frustrated, annoyed there. If we were to think of all the words that we could just list off that are emotion based words, give us enough time. We probably could get a dozen, half dozen or more. If you set a timer and ask someone to list as many as they can in under a minute, you're probably going to get less just simply because yes, the time crunch and the pressure of having to think of emotion language was much more related to which words we use more often. And those might be more dominant states that we can recognize because we were allowed to recognize those ones. And so we're trained to notice them. And we don't notice anything else. So it isn't that as a human being, they're not experiencing all of the emotions. It's simply that they don't notice those other emotions because they're in, they're somewhat invisible to them. So when we want to start developing our emotion language, the first easiest practice is just watch yourself like a hawk. And you can print off an emotion chart that already has all the words on it. Or you can start with a blank piece of paper and every time you're triggered emotionally, which means you're moving from a current state, which is an easy thing to do because we can feel the difference, or we could recognize we're behaving in a way that's indicative of an emotion and just write it down. This is what triggered me and this is what I felt. This is how I want to name it. And eventually what ends up happening is you get better and better and better at finding the right name, especially if you see it written down, because if someone cutting me off in traffic made me angry, then when, you know, I accidentally got hit by a snowball, uh, I'm going to look at anger is already written down on my tracking chart for when the guy cut me off in the car. I can't write angry again because I don't actually feel the same when the snowball hit me. So what did I feel when the snowball hit me, I felt mad, mad. Well, what's the difference between mad and angry? And now we're trying to figure out the nuances of our emotional experience. So we have accuracy to language and the importance of that. If we just follow that 
thought process through to the end is the more accurate I am with my language, the more I notice signals in my body, the more I notice signals in my body, the faster I can pick up on changes in emotional climate. And the sooner I could pick up on changes in my emotional climate, so my physiology, then the faster I recognize what's going on environmentally that triggers me. And if we can go all the way to recognizing, oh, this is a moment when I would normally at the end of the process be mad, (laughs) then up here in the environment, I'm going to do something different to change the trajectory. I'm going to change my mindset. I'm going to change my thought process. I'm going to change my interaction. I'm going to communicate something instead so we can get in front of and we can alter the path that is typically a default emotional path. Yeah, this is, um, I think we talked about this before. I I love the idea that it's not necessarily that we're going to, we're going to suddenly just have this huge, like, difference in how we maybe even experience a, a trigger moment. It's almost all the things that can happen even before and the communication with a partner or a, a, a friend, anyone, like whether it's even telling them what your mood is already, um, it, like noticing, like I love this, this idea of even the process, whether whatever word comes next, you know, when you're even discerning between mad or angry, it's also just the fact then that you're actually paying attention, like, you know, like deeply paying attention. And I don't know, I think the more we pay attention and the more we communicate that to somebody else, I think that's where there's so much possibility for different outcomes in relationships, even if, you know, sometimes it's really hard, even if we to not get triggered by the same thing we've been triggered for for 20, 30 years. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so, it's like we it's like we can deal with so many things around the trigger um, that that can lead to really substantially different outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yep. The uh, Travis Bradbury's book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, and Jean Greve, so she's the co-author on it, that is practice number one, is watch yourself like a hawk and write it down. Because <laughs> the watching part is great. The writing part allows you to be much more objective about your experience rather than subjective about your experience, which is important if we want to elevate a skill set, right? We have to be able to look at it from the outside. And the entirety of this process, of course, it it can alter the trajectory of our life, the trajectory of our relationships, the, how we make decisions, how we feel in our own skin, like it it really can alter everything. And it isn't because in your description, I can hear people hearing your description that you just provided and going, oh, now I have an excuse for why I can show up like an asshole. (laughs) No, No, radical personal responsibility is about I'm feeling this particular way and this is how I'm going to manage it. So it doesn't derail my interaction. It doesn't derail me and my relationship with myself. It doesn't derail how I'm communicating. It doesn't derail my motivation or my performance at work. And what we can often see generationally right now is a really big struggle on the radical personal responsibility side, like the abilities to manage emotional distress. We're really not equipping our kids to do that very well. And so emotional states currently are being used as excuses for why we can't show up to work, why we can't do this thing, why we can't get our homework done, why we can't, why we can't, why we can't as opposed to being empowered to know this is my emotional state and I have lots of strategies for managing it and I can still show up, perform, whatever, while also discerning. Sometimes we are in an emotional state where like, I actually can't and asking for what we need. So I can't perform today, which means I'm going to take a personal day off. doesn't mean I still get to show up to work and get paid. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, definitely. Just by the way, in terms of the self accountability piece, if 
if that's not there through any of this, well, then <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of what's, what's the point to anything um, in, in terms of, of how we're, how we're approaching life, I guess. Um, the, the other part to this, I, I think is really, is really interesting is the, the sense of then, you know, once we, once we have all this information, once we've shared it with people, where do you kind of see as well then, like, and definitely accountability, but also, also, I guess, a bit of like compassion for the the difficulty even within this sometimes, you, you know, so the, the, we see our triggers. I even see this with some friends that are in, like, they're psychologists, they're, you know, um, psychotherapists, they see their patterns and they know their triggers and you know sometimes we're still caught up in in it all like mm-hmm. you know we don't go from seeing a pattern to to just fixing it right what do you what do you kind of think of in that in in the some of the in-between phases where it's it's we we still feel kind of at the at the whim of a lot of this stuff yeah it's hard work yeah 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 <laughs> to have that sort of full circle moment um as we relate to the beginning of our conversation, it sometimes it is asking that question, is this thing I've just discovered, is that me? Or is that something that I have learned? So whenever I've picked up on emotional triggers, I've asked myself that question, is that thing a trigger for me? And then I respond in this particular way, because that has what has been modeled for me. And so that's what I've just learned to do. This happens, this happens, this happens. And a lot of the times, we're going to go back in this exploration to our childhood and ask the question, when did I learn that? How did I learn that? Who did I learn that from? Not for the purpose of blaming, the purpose for understanding the Genesis story of how, why I do this thing now. And then being able to say, is that how I want to be? Like, does that feel authentic to me? Is that how I want to show up in the world? Are those the things that I want to sweat? Or is that a small thing? And that's something I'm willing to let go of. Now, what is the work I have to do to let go of it? And you know, Eckhart Tolle is one of the best teachers that I've ever come across when it comes to understanding your ego and how to work with your ego and how to release your ego <laughs> for other things. Um, it's going to be part of the equation is getting to know that that part of you as well um, is a key element in detaching from certain things and and doing that hard work because sometimes it's a switch where you could just turn it off and be like, I'm not going to do that anymore. And it can be that easy. And other times it is not that easy. And it could be years working on releasing a reaction to a particular trigger. So I, I guess then even just like a, an awareness of, you know, some things may come and, and some things may come and go more quickly and than other things. There was a, a book I was reading, I forget who the authors of it were, there um, a couple of uh, Japanese authors, I think, and the book was called The Courage to be Disliked. And they were mm. talking about um, Adlerian psychology. And in the whole of the book, there's just this one paragraph, a very short paragraph in it, where the student is getting really frustrated with the wise sage who's imparting this information on him. And I remember it's just written in one line and everything else seems so matter of fact, but he says in it, oh yeah, with Adlerian psychology, if you start this at, uh, at 20, maybe you'll have it processed by the time you're 30. If you started at, uh, at, at, uh, at 40, it might take you till you're 60, <laughs> you know, as I, I think there's like, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, I guess some, some appreciation sometimes of just the, as you say, like the continued work, but then I guess the paying attention again to the nuance of the effect that it's having, even if it isn't um, a crystal clear, a hundred percent solution to something, you know, ah, before I used to, we used to have this argument, maybe and it might last for hours. Now I'm, now we're, we're, we're I don't know, we're cleaning things up a lot more quickly, like just paying attention to the, to, to the nuance of the outcome as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Allowing, Allowing it to be a process, allowing it to be fluid, allowing it to happen the way it's going to happen with also an understanding you don't really know how it's going to happen. I've had moments where sometimes I've been working on releasing a trigger and 
getting myself as far away from a trigger being an emotional trigger to me because, you know, in my, in my experiences younger, it always felt like I would feel something first and then I would act, behave and think about it. And of course there is all the best research now in understanding our brain. And that actually was the classic theory around our emotional awareness anyways, is that's where we're feeling beings. We're going to feel it first and then we'll think about it after but the brain doesn't actually operate in that way. <laughs> so it's all happening at the same time. Some of our signals are simply much stronger than other signals. And so triggers where I feel them and I have an automatic emotional response to those were often a lot harder for me to train myself out of because they required so much impulse control so much wrapping my head around not allowing an emotion to spike really high. And a lot of those did relate to emotions that I saw repeatedly in my close circle when I was growing up. And so we have to think about that nurture nature. Would I have nat would I naturally be that way if I was raised in a different family environment? And again, in the self-exploration, it's not to be able to say, oh, if only I had different parents, I'd be different. <laughs> it's not about that. It's about arriving to it now and saying, well, I am different. One, because I'm an adult. So I've had all of this life experience behind me. And so when I started really looking at it in my mid to late 20s, it, I couldn't go like, if only I had different parents, if only I had a different family, if only, yeah, of course, if only it could be worse, it could be better, it's going to be different. Of course, it's going to be different. But now I'm empowered. So the autonomy lives here. I can either keep doing that, or I can decide, I don't want to be like that. That doesn't feel like me. I want to be different. And then I do the work to be different. And when people ask me, you know, okay, so what's the work? What's the answer? I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't have that answer for you. You have to figure out the kind of work that it takes for you to evolve in that way. I could tell you the things that I did to help me evolve in that way. And you could try some of them, see if they work for you. But how did I figure it out? I just tried stuff. <laughs> I just tried stuff that I thought, well, maybe it'll help if I do this. Maybe it'll help if I do that. Maybe it'll help if I, if I keep thinking this way, maybe I need to train my brain to think a different way. I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds like, that sounds like a logical way to approach it. So I just run these experiments and sometimes they work and sometimes they didn't work. And sometimes I had to ask other people and they would tell me their experience and I would try their thing or I'd read another book and I'd be like, oh, that's cool. That's a different concept. That's a different idea. And I'd integrate that into my practices. So you know, there's a lot that we can figure out, I think, on our own. And it's very organic in that sense. And then we'll have a ceiling cap to our capacity to do it on our, on our own. And we definitely need to use our community, not just the people I can touch that are close to me, but the community of the world. There's lots of people who have been on this journey before. There's a lot of literature, a lot of videos. It's easily accessible at our fingertips right now so easy to access information now anything we want to learn about how we traverse this terrain is available to us which is great what's the most surprising thing uh, that has changed or shifted in in your emotional responses uh, to life like what are the first kind of things that come to mind where you're like Man, I, I really thought that this was <laughs> this was always gonna be me. Um poof. I'd say probably first and foremost is specifically in my relationship with my mother. Right. So I thought I would always egoically respond to her. Because in a way, it also felt good to do that. It felt good to be right, to be in the right, to be superior, um, to put her in her place because she made lots of mistakes in parenting. And then I became a parent. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> now, I had done work before I became a parent, so I was already, I would say, 75% of the way there, good 75% of the way. And when I had my son, that was the rest of the 25%, which, which for me was also the hardest part because it was the part that I wanted to hold on to egoically. So the other 75% was really shift. I had to shift all of all of me and my behaviors. At first I wanted her to change, but I'm like, mm. <laughs> that's a ridiculous way to try to go about this. And it was, it was literally the hardest work bar none from day one and all of the work I've ever done on myself. The hardest work is showing up in that relationship with kindness and compassion. 100% that was the hardest thing I've ever done. To this day, it sometimes is. Like, I find myself working the hardest on managing myself um, in that relationship. And I do, so I can recognize now, and every time I get off the phone or get out of two days of being with her, I, I congratulate myself. I'm like, well done, you did it. Good job. <laughs> because I think that recognition is important. It's a reminder of the the alternative is never never good. It's never good for me. It's never good for her. It's never good for us. It's never good for the bystanders that are around it. Like it's just entirely toxic. So for me, that particular work was probably the most pivotal and critical. And it didn't just live in that relationship as none of our work ever does. What I had to do to shift to be in that relationship impacted every other relationship, impacted every other a job, like it impacted everything in really positive ways. So I guess the short answer would be, I found the thing that was the hardest and I did that and it made everything else a lot easier. But there's, there's some beautiful stuff in this in terms of, well, not even just the, the reflection when you become a parent yourself, but I, I really loved the idea or the, I don't know, the understanding that so often we want to put the responsibility for somebody to change. And that's almost where we focus mm -hmm. our energy, right? Like where we're like, mm -hmm. if I just keep telling them to change, or if I, if I keep explaining to them why they're wrong, that that may, mm -hmm. that may dramatically shift something. And I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've wasted so much time in, in different, in various different relationships in my life going down that route because that that's just an absolute recipe for for frustration and and misery on every everyone's behalf but i i think mm -hmm. i as well as that though especially with the parents stuff um mm -hmm. it's just like you know our parents grew up then in a in a different generation or other people's parents and their grandparents and great grandparents were mm -hmm. growing up at times where this is just the kind of continuous chain where everyone was dealing with something from, from past generations as well. Right. And it, it's, mm -hmm. like, I, I don't know, I think it's super interesting to, I've, when you were kind of saying about the accountability piece, again, it, when you're 25 or 29 going, well, just because that was part of my environment doesn't mean it has to be, be part of mine. Like, I think that's some of the most important work. And as you say, the most difficult work there, there is for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there, is a, there is a lot of emotional attachment to a lot of these things. And being able to navigate our emotions is a vital part of that type of work that needs to be done. One of the one of the key pieces around relationships, when we have relationships that we are finding are quite stressful for us in that way or quite strained in that way, we're emotionally showing up to them. And often it is going to be a negative emotions, you know, annoyed, irritated, frustrated, angry. We have those kinds of emotions that permeate into this space when we're with them. But also those are the emotions that are coming with us before we're even there. So we're already in a slightly elevated high arousal state before anything even happens. It's sort of anticipatory. Our ability to re replace frustration with firmness is actually a, a really critical piece because in relationships that are strained, it's because our boundaries are being crossed all the time. So one, it might be because we're not communicating our boundaries. Two, it might be because we are communicating them, but not clearly. So we have uh, our boundaries keep shifting. Yeah. 
So we need to be firm and clear on what our boundaries are and succinct when we describe them. And then we have to hold our boundaries without emotional distress. So every time my mother would cross one of my boundaries, one of the things I worked on is I don't need to be angry, frustrated, mad, annoyed with the fact that she crossed a boundary. It's her behavior. Actually, I should expect that she does that because that's what she's done the entire time I've been alive. At least that's what it felt like. (laughs) It's the only thing I've known is she keeps crossing my boundaries. She will keep pushing them. She'll keep erasing them. She'll keep steamrolling them. And so I should expect her to do that. And as soon as my expectation of her behavior matched what she did, then my emotional response to what she did changed entirely. And I predetermined the response I wanted to have. So I programmed it in my head. From now on, when my mom breaks one of my boundaries or violates one of my boundaries, I'm just going to go, oh, yep, that's mom. More so than why the bleep, but a bleep, but a bleep that would go on in my head is she and I like my blood pressure, my heart rate, everything through the roof. And now I'm the one who's suffering. And that flip helped me to then approach in a response to her firmness rather than frustration. And I communicate way better when I'm in a state of well being. I can communicate firmness way better than when I'm in a state of frustration. And I found that when I did that on repeat, she started to do something different because she no longer one triggered me. Her ways of getting what she wanted didn't work anymore. When she slowly started to figure out this doesn't work anymore, she had to try something different because she wasn't getting the outcome she wanted. She wasn't getting anything she wanted, actually. (laughs) She wasn't getting a rise out of me, nor were was she able to push through my boundaries anymore? And so by influence of my own changes, she had to be different. And it was really powerful the first time I recognized she actually upheld one of my boundaries. I almost had one of those like crying moments of joy rather than crying moments of sadness, which is what I usually had from the experiences. I was so happy it worked because at the end of the day, I wanted to have a relationship with my mom. I needed her to want it as well. And when we got to the space of both wanting the same thing and realizing or recognizing how we had to show up in order for that to happen, it was pretty powerful. Can you describe, uh, can you describe that moment or that realization? Um, it's kind of, it, yes, I can, because I think whenever we say, you know, when your heart gets so full and, and I hope everyone has watched the Grinch and Soul Christmas and, and your heart grows, <laughs> grows five sizes too big. That's what it feels like in the body. That's what it felt like in my body is my heart got bigger. And so when I think about, you know, the topography of emotions, then I would definitely say, well, my love experience grew. And along with that came like acceptance and the, what is the, isn't an Afrikaans word? I see you. Right. That I see you. So there is like, that's the high level of it. And underpinning all of that are things like, I get you, I accept you, uh, I forgive you. Like there's so many layers that come underneath that, that create the topography of it, which was like really overwhelming in the moment. And anytime I'm emotionally overwhelmed, I start crying, um, whether that be sad or really happy. And so this was a combination of all of those things because I felt sad that it hadn't happened sooner. And there were so many years of discourse, but then I also felt happy like it happened and the future is going to be quite different. That sounds absolutely glorious. You know, there's... It was, glorious. (laughs) I I think that there's... um, I think that captures beautifully experiences I've also had in life where you think something is always going to be the same. Um, We've... Mm -hmm. We put so much focus on 
why the other person is wrong um and in, in many cases they they may be objectively wrong like or you may even be justified to hold on to something and and say i'll just continue to fight fire with fire and you'll continue to suffer but there's something just mm-hmm. i don't know so reaffirming or it gives me so much hope when there's ever moments like this in our lives where especially when it's in some of our our fundamental relationships that we've almost resigned ourselves to the fact that this is never going to change and mm-hmm. yet this is still possible like s- something like you've mm-hmm. just described is still possible mm-hmm. yeah because before we got to that point we went through the combat stage and then we went we went through a stage where i said no i can't have contact like three years of zero contact because I was so distressed and also angry that I thought the only way I can function in life without this relationship is to remove it a hundred percent. And I, at that time, I also said, I'm going to work on me in the three years. I would love it if you worked on you, but I can't make you do that. I do know, however, we can't come back into this relationship until you're ready to come back into this relationship. And these are the things that I have as expectations, AKA boundaries for when we do come back into this relationship. I had put so much thought into like, what are those things that are really the pillars and foundations of what I need in this relationship? And so being able to articulate it also, I think gave the opportunity for her to decide if she wanted to do the kind of work that would be necessary for her to show up like that. And I made it perfectly clear that if she would like to provide me with expectations for her, that she can certainly do that as well. And it took her some time to get there. In fact, like almost 20 years later, she communicated her what hers are, but everyone's journey is their journey, right? So um, you can only get there when you get there. But I think this is also... You know, there, sometimes I think when we're earlier in our journeys, whatever that is for people, um, we can be, our words kind of contain more empty calories, you know, so we can hear of a new, um, we can hear of a new, um, a, like kind of mindset or way of approaching the world or techniques, or we can be early in our practices where we know intellectually, you know, even like, let's say with Eckhart Tolle, like the you know, just, just drop, you know, I read a new earth and I'm almost like, oh yeah, that's just my ego. I'm just going to drop my ego. So intellectually I knew what to do. (laughs) And, and, you know, you end up kind of describing things as, oh, that's just my ego. Yeah. But it takes a lot of bloody work to even like, you know, for that to to be as uh, less sticky or as less, um, less difficult. Um, but when we fundamentally change in ourselves, when other people recognize that that's actually what's happened, because I, I don't know for, and I'm not projecting this onto you, but my experience was I was telling everyone in my family that I had changed. <laughs> Probably in hindsight, long before I'd like, you know, something fun, more fundamental maybe had shifted. But I, but I do think when you, something fundamental has shifted in you, it, it's not about even it's of course it's still about communicating things and communi- clear communication is so important like and as you touched on there boundaries boundaries are absolutely colossally important to communicate with clarity but as you said with a firm calmness as opposed to a reactive emotion but when you but when it's a combination of clear communication but also a very clear sense probably in them that oh they have something has shifted here when i push this button i don't get the same response and then as you kind of pointed out in your situation the only thing to they have to reflect because because now something in their world has changed and it's not like it's not the same way of like trying to force someone to change verbally in arguments with heated emotions it's this I, I don't know. It's it's something so different. It, it, it's it, but it's still your behavior or your shifts have created space. Maybe it's even just a creating of space or a moment of reflection, um, that that triggers something. But something I don't know. It, I think it's it's literally one of the most powerful and beautiful experiences um, 
that I can think of when when that that occurrence uh, when that happens. Yeah, agreed. I think part of it is our model that we have of how someone is. It lags and it's updating. So while you have already changed and you're showing up differently, their model of how they see you and interact with you hasn't updated to that yet. Perhaps because the number of times you're doing the new model has not been enough for them to go, oh, yes. this is, oh, this is for real. <laughs> this is for real. They're they're banking, I think, a lot of what they're doing on the fact that you'll slip into the old model. And when you don't, this is the like the consistency of our practices. Um, and when you don't, at some point, their model of you updates, and that's that's when they have their internal reflection. Otherwise, I don't. Until their internal model of you updates, I don't think they have that's, that. Uh, I think that's really well captured. And and I'd even say um, sometimes it takes... I always have this image sometimes when we're shifting behaviors. Um, I don't know if you kind of... You know those kind of uh, shots of like an, an athlete sprinting and you see the kind of the lag of uh, their images trailing behind them. Um and I think even for us, it, it's great that we we maybe have new ideas about ourselves, that we're deploying new behavior and that we're communicating that change. Um, in my case, maybe a bit fundamentally, whatever anyone else's experience is. Um, but like there's, there's this time then where, and I think it's especially true with family then, because other people that have, have just met us maybe four or five years ago, possibly can't even imagine us behaving us in the way that we describe ourselves in our teens or 20s. Like, I think there's a probably a, a group of people in my life that can't imagine me lose my temper. And then if you asked other people in my earlier part of life to describe me, it would be Mark loses his temper. Like that would, <laughs> that would be the key. So I think with family too, then I think that's why it's so tricky is because they have so, like, as you say, until you prove it to them with your actions and your repeated actions, they just have too big a database mm -hmm. to, to believe even what they're potentially seeing. And we have too many kind of emotional experiences where we have scar tissue even from all the times that I know this isn't you. I, I know what you're telling me isn't you, but it, it actually is. It goes back to this time lag thing you're talking about. Yes. And that, that's, that's part of the work when, when we're considering our own development, we have to update our own model of ourselves. We have to give permission and time for people to update their models of us as well. And then when we're in relationships, we have to update our models of other people too, right? Like I want the compassion from other people to update their model for me. I'm like, ah, that's yeah. reciprocal. <laughs> I also have to update my model of other people. I can't keep showing up in a relationship, commenting on things that they've done before. And this is currently the practice that I am focused on with the relationship with my husband, because he's done a lot of work over the last 18 months to two years in his own journey and development. And my model is right. lagging. And so I, I recognize sometimes I say things that are of that and he will say, yeah, I don't do that anymore. Remember? And I'm just like, oh, that's right. That's right. You aren't doing that anymore. And so I have to release that and update my model. And that will, when I do, how I show up for him and the things that I say to him and about him will be different, will be very different, which will make his own journey a lot easier as well, because then he's not fighting the old model that people bring up. I mean, if we could do that for each other a lot faster that would expedite other people's growth. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is when you said that, but like I, my eyes got a little watery or something just at the, like I really think there's so much compassion in that, right? Like of mm -hmm. if we can all update our models of each other because it's it's such a it's such an obstacle to somebody else's um, evolution. Um, and, it, and also like a, a very contentious, it creates a lot of like very kind of, difficult situations when they're really trying and what they need is our love support and going back to this idea again of mm -hmm. i see you i see the effort you're making i see the changes mm -hmm. you've made like there's, mm -hmm. there's something within that which is very i don't know very affirming like i, I think so much of mm -hmm. of relating in general is is really seeing the other person and 
and acknowledging that. And then for us as individuals, that's such a, I don't know, that's such a kind of, I don't know, it, it's a really big moment in our lives that somebody is, has seen and acknowledged that. Agreed. Teresa, I'm just, just conscious of the time and, and I know kind of what we've been talking about, you know, moving from the idea of the, the initial question you're asking yourself, is that me? deciphering in life and and going through life like discerning whether is that me is that what society expects of me is that what my environment expects of me going through even then the you know there are conversation around emotions and and our accountability and our expanding our vocabulary and helping people change having accountability for for our own responses and even looking at at our at our upbringing and saying okay that is what's happened but this is still on me uh going through that that uh, example you gave them with your your mother then with this just this glorious uh this glorious shift in the relationship and then even talking about our relationship with spouses there acknowledging people seeing people um updating our models so we're not stuck in this kind of lag and creating this friction between us and given all that we've discussed as I generally finish these conversations, it's with the question of what what is a good life for you, Teresa? You know, it's such a I wanted to be able to have something like really <laughs> punchy. <laughs> really punchy. What is a good life? And then I thought it kind of is really a simple answer for me. A good life, a good life to me is one in which I'm experiencing joy more often than I'm experiencing something else. <laughs> um and I, it is that simple. And I have figured out my recipe for joy is actually very simple. And as long as I stick to that, it seems pretty easy. What's a, what's a, can you give us a sense of some of the flavors or ingredients in that recipe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I need to be outside. I Like I need to be connected to nature. I need to be moving. I'm built to run. That's my preferred mode of being in the world and I need to be connected to about six people it's my magic number that's pretty much it (laughs) I mean I can add on I have to do meaningful work and be contributing that's the selfish aspect of things like how do I show up in the world that what I do reciprocates back to my own wellness so the meaningful work is a part of that I basically have found meaningful work my whole life. Anything that I'm doing, I it's pretty easy for me to go like, this is a contribution. All right, this is meaningful right. to me. <laughs> um, now, however, I've really landed in a sweet spot of having all of the ingredients present at one time. And so I would say right now, this is the best good life well, I've That's lived. absolutely wonderful to hear. Uh, Teresa, look, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for you for all that you've shared. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation immensely and uh, I look forward to, to many more, hopefully as well. Thanks, Mark. It's been a great pleasure.